18 begins like this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where was a garden into the which he entered and his disciples. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place, for Jesus oftentimes resorted there with his disciples. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said unto them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. And as soon as he had said, I am, they went backwards and fell to the ground. Then asked he them again, Whom seek ye? They said unto him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I have told you that I am. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way that the saying might be fulfilled, which he spake of them which thou gavest me, have I lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, and smote the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear, and the servant's name was Malchus. Then Jesus said to Peter, Put up thy sword into the sheaf. The cup which the Father hath given me Shall I not drink it? So uh, John now taking us from the upper room from chapter 13 to 17. It was taken from a discourse now to a narrative. He gives us a picture again. He's telling us what happened. Um, He's different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke in that John doesn't tell us about the agony in the garden. Jesus praying asking the father the cup might pass. He doesn't tell us about Judas kissing Jesus to identify him. He doesn't tell us about the Lord saying, you know, to Peter, don't you think I could call down 12 legions of angels right now if I wanted to? John is writing much later. John is communicating with the church. And John His heart's desire is to put in front of us the deity of Jesus Christ. He said he had written these things that people might believe that Jesus was the Son of God and that believing they may have life through his name. So throughout his gospel, rather than historical supplemental facts to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which were well known, no doubt, by the time he writes, he writes specifically to put Jesus, our Lord, his deity, in front of us. So he begins now telling us when Jesus had spoken these words, these ones we've been studying for weeks here in the upper room, that he went forth with his disciples over the brook Kidron, gives us some, you know, a map there, just gives us some of the topography, where was a garden, it says, into which he entered with his disciples. So he's telling us now the picture. You know, we have, we have in the other gospels Jesus going. One of them tells us they sang a hymn as they went. 
he says specifically that they went after he had spoken these words. Some try to put that back in chapter 14, verse 30, that uh, Jesus said, this is all happening, now let us arise. Uh, he did say that, but that's at the end of a sentence that it, it kind of insinuates it's time now, this is gonna happen. It says here specifically that Jesus went out after he had spoken those words. Hard for me to imagine Jesus trailing through dark Jerusalem with enemies everywhere, trying to give these guys chapter 15, 16, and 17 with them kind of straggling and falling, you know, kind of flowing all around him as he's speaking these things. It, it seems very proper that he sat there in that room or stood with them. And we hear those chapters then 15 through 17. And it says when he finished saying those things, they went, there's a verb, they went out at that point in time. And it says, and they crossed the Kidron, uh, the brook of Kidron. And literally it says they crossed there the winter brook of Kidron. When you go to Jerusalem and Israel today, um, the, the surface of the Temple Mount itself is almost 200 foot above the bottom of the valley where the brook of Kidron would run. And then on the western side, you have the slopes of the Mount of Olives, uh, where Gethsemane was. So it tells us clearly here, Jesus leaves, goes out from where he was. He went out after he spoke these things. They trail through the streets of Jerusalem. They go down then the slope to where the Kidron is. And they cross that and then go up the slope of the Mount of Olives into a garden. Kidron, it's the winter brook because in the winter months when it rains, there's a small stream that flows. And by the way, the valley of Kidron, the brook goes all the way down to the Dead Sea, which God's going to use miraculously in the beginning of the millennium. But Kidron, some say it means cedar. No, in the language, what it means is dark or black because the Kidron would run black with the blood of sacrifices. Josephus tells us at Passover at this time, there were 200,000 lambs sacrificed. There was a 30 mile pipeline, which I've seen a number of times that came from lower in Judah, which is a bit higher. The Romans built it all the way up to the Temple Mount so they could wash blood away and it would run down into the Kidron and the whole Kidron would run black with the blood of bulls and goats. Um, you know how if you, your kids you know, do something, they get blood on their shirt, it's black the next day. Jesus had crossed that many times, we know at least from when he was 12 years old, knowing that the blood of the lamb one day would be his. And he goes across that knowing it would be the last time he would cross that with his disciples in his own freedom until he comes again. And they go, it says, into this garden. It, it insinuates he went into an enclosure. Garden there, klepos is, is uh, kephos is more properly a grove um, or an orchard. It isn't a garden of flowers. And the reason there was a wall around it was that evidently the olive press itself, which was Gethsemane means oil press, was inside the enclosure. 
And it says, Jesus had gone there many times with his disciples, no doubt with the permission of the owner. Uh, the per, you know, he had the permission of the person who owned the ass that he rode in on Palm Sunday. He had permission of the person that owned the upper room where they just had the Passover. And it seems clear they had permission from the owner of this enclosure, this garden, this olive grove, that they were able to go there, sleep there. It says they had gone there many times. So he goes over, he enters into the garden, it says, with his disciples. And Judas, verse 2, also, which betrayed him. It's interesting that the tense there is Judas also, which was in the act of betraying him. It was taking place right then. Remember, Jesus at the Last Supper said to, to Judas, what thou doest, doest quickly. He knew he was going out before they partook. It says, Judas, who was in the act of betraying him, he knew the place. For Jesus oftentimes resorted there with his disciples. So well, as we watch this, we're going to see Jesus completely in control. The, 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 it's not the Romans. It's not these other people. Jesus himself is completely in control of this situation. If he wanted to avoid Judas, he could have frustrated his plans just by, by not going to Gethsemane. He goes there on purpose. He knows Judas knows of that place. He goes there because his hour had come. He goes there because he was completely yielded to the divine plan from the foundation of the world that's being realized at this point in time. And verse 3 says, Judas, having received, he's already done that, he cometh, he's coming. Judas then, having received a band of men, and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees was coming there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So it tells us then that Judas is coming with, it tells us, a band. Uh, that's, that's, a, that's a Latin word. It means a cohort. Uh, a cohort was a tenth of a legion. A legion was usually a thousand men with auxiliaries and so forth. Each cohort was at least 600 soldiers plus auxiliaries. There were six cohorts in Judea regularly. Five of them, 5,000 men, were always in Caesarea where Pilate lived most of the year, where the Roman you know, government ruled from. And there was always a thousand, one cohort in Jerusalem in the Antonio Fortress on the northern side of the Temple Mount. So Judas now comes with a cohort. We, maybe the Romans are nervous. They saw the crowds as he came in on Palm Sunday, all the people. No doubt the religious leaders are telling him he's going to bring a revolt. You know, he's going to cause trouble. So it doesn't tell us the whole 600 men go with Judas. But there were no doubt hundreds, both Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us it was a multitude or it was a great multitude that come with him. Their weapons, it mentions in the synoptics, swords. When we have swords, we have Romans. 
And then it says there were officers of the high priests and Pharisees. Those are Levites who have a duty in the temple courts, and they guard all the entrances to the temple. They watch them all. And they went constantly watching over the court of the Gentiles, so there'd be no trouble there. They carried clubs, and they had the right to arrest and to punish. So here comes this great crowd with them. At the head of the cohort would have been a tribune, and it seems that the head of the officers was Malchus. Every time he's mentioned in all four Gospels, he has an article before his name, the servant of the high priest. So he's specifically connected to Caiaphas. Here it says that the officers are of the high priests, plural, because they recognized the current high priest, which was Caiaphas. They recognized the previous high priest, which was Annas. And they recognized the families of Aaron, where the high priests came from. So when they talked about the high priests, often they talked about the high priests or the priests. They come with the Pharisees and they come into this area where Jesus is. And it says they have torches, which are sticks bound together with a fuel, not a, an oil, a fuel, a tar on the top. The lamps, the lanterns are running on oil and weapons. So they're coming with all this light to arrest the light of the world kind of interesting. Um, it was a full moon. It was Passover. You could see around you. Meantime, they bring lights, lanterns, torches. doesn't say that every one of them had a torch or lantern, but they bring enough so they can be seen moving. There was a part of that was intimidation. It tells us in verse 18 that Peter is warming himself at the enemy's fire because it was cold. And in that part of the world, when you had a cold night, it was cloudless. So there's plenty of light, as it were. It's a full moon. It's a clear sky. But yet as they come, they come with torches and lanterns, no doubt because they specifically want to identify Jesus. And a signal had been given. They, Jesus, Judas had said, the one I go to and begin kissing, he kissed him more than once, that's the one. Because they couldn't just come and pick, everybody had long hair and beards. They kind of all looked the same, you know, all had the same outfit on. Uh, so they come now to this garden, Judas leading them, along with them the tribune and no doubt Mal Malchus, Look at verse 4. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things. You know what all means in the Greek? Yeah, you guys are learning Greek. That's great. I'm still, I don't know Greek either, but I know that all means all in the Greek. Jesus, knowing all things that should come upon him, he went forth. He went out then, indicating from this walled area, and said unto them, whom seek ye? So he initiates, not the tribune, not Malchus. He steps out. It would seem at this point, Judas has already gone up. He's at the front and kissed him to identify him. It wouldn't have made any sense for Judas to kiss him after 
He said, I am, and they all fell down. Hundreds of them go down to the ground. Wouldn't make any sense to get up at that point. And Malchus say, let me kiss, you, kiss him so you know which one it is. There was no doubt by then. So no doubt at this point, Judas kisses him as they come. He's identified, but he, doesn't, he takes it away from Judas. And he addresses the soldiers. He says, whom seek ye? He takes it under his own initiative. And it says he does that knowing all things. The arrest. The, the trials, the injustice, the beatings, the spitting, the scourging, the, the crown of thorns, the crucifixion. His hour had come. And it says, knowing all things. It's a picture of his omniscience. He doesn't know just what's happening right there. He knows all things. John is presenting Jesus and his deity here. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, doesn't flee. He moves forward. He went, and now he's the one who says, he initiates. He said unto them, whom seek ye? Taking the situation away from Judas. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said unto them, I am, you'll notice in your text, he is in italics because Jesus didn't say, I am, he said, I am. What the burning bush said to Moses, what Jesus had said to them before Abraham was, I am. We had said over and over, I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd and so forth. You go through John's gospel when he's pointing us to the deity of Christ Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus said to them, I am. And it says, Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. So Jesus initiates. He asks them. He says, whom are you seeking? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, Joshua was a common name. Jesus of Nazareth identified him. He was born in Bethlehem, but he was raised in Nazareth. So Nazareth identified him as we look at this, but it was also kind of a, an insult. It was almost a belittling. They made fun of the Nazarenes. And he says, Jesus of Nazareth, that's what they answer him. It's interesting in chapter 19, verse 19, you don't have to turn, when Pilate crucifies him, it says, and Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, in three different languages. And the religious leaders said, don't say king of the Jews, say he said he was king of the Jews. You know, it was the idea of a Nazarene being their king was beyond their, so whom seek ye? Jesus of Nazareth, and then he says to them, I am. And it tells us, sadly, Judas stood with them. Judas is with the crowd and not with the few. There was Jesus and the 11 disciples. There were hundreds that were antagonists, unbelievers. And make sure if you're backslidden, you've been away from the Lord, 
you're a prodigal, make sure you're not standing with the wrong crowd. The 11 were the minority, as believers are today. The vast majority that was hostile, being hostile to him, were not saved. Unbelievers. And sadly, it says Judas, who had walked with him and seen his miracles. Judas, who had cast out levers, lepers, opened the eyes of the blind so he had raised the dead. He had done the miracles that Jesus sent him out. Judas, who had experienced all those things, the wind, the sea, and so forth. Judas is standing with the wrong crowd now. How sad. How so pointed it is as we look at it. It says that Judas stood with them. Verse 6 says, as soon then... As he said unto them, I am, they went backwards and they fell to the ground. Two verbs that are both emphatic. They, they actually, they went backwards and then it's kind of like they actually fell to the ground. It's not saying a few of them went down. Roman soldiers don't go down easy, by the way. So you have hundreds of Roman soldiers and then the officers the, from the temple precincts Jesus says, I am, and you have to imagine hundreds of them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, a multitude, a great multitude, all going down at one time. I mean, they're rolling on each other's torches, their oil spilled, I don't know how many are on fire. You just think, this is pandemonium, this is insanity. These guys are all over, because he said, I am, the deity of who he was, his divine person. John wants us to see that. You see, because... All of the legions of the Roman Empire could have gathered around him, untold tens of thousands. And with one word, he fell them. All the world's armies, political powers, everything we see today, it says when he comes in the book of Revelation, he slays the enemies in the world with the sword of his mouth. Here, the same one says, I am, and hundreds are all over the ground. And again, you have to understand how, how insane this picture was. And again, the, 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 the Roman legions in their totality couldn't have stood before the Nazarene. Interesting. And then it says in verse 7 that he asked, that's different. Back in verse 4, it says, he said to them. Now, literally, he now questions them. They came to question him. He's the one in charge here. It's a more deliberate, forceful word. He questioned them. Whom seek ye? And, and they kind of, with a different tone, said, uh, Jesus of Nazareth? You know, it must have been much different the second time, you know. Uh, he questions them. Who is it? You know, it's funny. They're all getting up. He says, okay, now tell me again. Who are you seeking? Who are you looking for? Kind of interesting. They say again, Jesus of Nazareth, he said, I told you that I am. We don't know if they all went. When he said, I told you now the third time. If you seek me, it's the third time he's being specific that they seek him. Whom seek ye? Now, if you seek me, let these go their way. Notice, and the disciples are going to leave by his command, by his permission. The Romans are not in charge here. The tribune's not giving the orders. The tribune, no doubt, and Malchus are up front, 
and he's saying, ask, ask them a question, and they're saying, it's not all the Romans didn't, okay, ready, one, two, three, Jesus of Nazareth. They didn't all say it together. It was the leaders up front that were answering him. And he says, I've told you that's who I am. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way. Verse 9 says that the saying might be fulfilled, which he spake of them which thou gavest me, I have lost none in his prayer that we read, chapter 17, verse 12. Then he says, accept the son of perdition so that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now, in chapter 17, verse 12, it's certainly speaking in an eternal sense. Of all those you can have lost none but the son of perdition. There's no contradiction here because if the Romans would have killed them here, they'd have all gone to hell. None of the 11 are born again at this point in time. So this is consistent with the prayer in chapter 17. He says, if you're seeking me, let them go their way. Now they're going to flee when it happens, but Jesus is in control. Jesus is giving orders to the tribune. Jesus is telling them what to do remarkably. And then it says, Simon Peter, we're so glad. Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it. And the question is always, where did he get the sword? You know, the sword shops weren't open on the way to Gethsemane. It was, you know, this is Peter. He got a sword. You know, he heard Jesus say, you know, when I sent you out before, I sent you out, you know, without a sword. This time, take an extra coat, take a sword. You know, that's all Peter could remember from that lesson. And it says that there were two of them with swords. The other person with the sword is not mentioned. So you can write your own name in there. Because how often when somebody comes at us to malign us or to challenge us, we immediately have a sword in our hand, don't we? We immediately, I do, I'll speak for myself, you look confused, but I, I, I find so often I'm like that. Peter, having a sword, drew it, and he smote the high priest's servant, the high priest servant again, and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Now, only John names Peter and Malchus in this scene. Peter is in glory. He's been crucified. Malchus, I believe, is there as well after what he goes through this evening. So they're both gone. Jerusalem is gone, destroyed over 20 years before this. That's why John says there was a garden in verse 1, not there is. And John is not afraid, writing to the church, to describe the participants here. It was Peter with the sword, and he cut off Malchus's right ear. Um, some try to say, and you don't have to listen to me here because I love to torture myself, that it was just part of his ear or it was his ear lobe because it's in the diminutive in the Greek. That person needs to study Greek because all parts of the human body in Greek are diminutive. A finger, a toe, an ear, a nose, all they're all diminutive. And it says 
he cut the ear off. You know what off means in the Greek? Yeah, he cut it off. He cut it off. And the reason he cut his ear off is because Peter was sleeping right before this. Jesus had to wake them up for the third time. He's still groggy. Lucky for Malchus, because I'm sure he wasn't aiming for his ear. Luke, Dr. Luke in chapter 22, verses 15 and 51, tells us that Jesus took the ear and healed him, put it back on again. I mean, did he get one of the lanterns? Come over here. Where is that thing? You know, just to get up, put it back on. Imagine, though, if he had been wide awake and he had taken Malchus's head off. How impressed Dr. Luke would have been. (laughs) You know, put that on straight, you know. But it's almost as though, you know, here there's going to be no blood spilled but his own. His hour has come. I mean, Malchus probably wouldn't have lost hearing just having one ear. Malchus, no doubt this was just cosmetic in a sense. It's the last miracle that Jesus does before the cross. Some say maybe the smallest. John tells us in chapter 20, verse 30, there are many things that Jesus did which are not written. Maybe he had done something smaller than that, but this is the one given to us. And he heals this man's ear that came off, puts it back on. The good doctor's impressed with that. And I have to believe that right now, Peter, in glory, looking at the lamb that was slain, has next to him a buddy named Malchus that he's probably saying, I am so sorry. I just, you know, just, you know, because, you know, this guy now, Malchus, goes back to the high priest, Caiaphas. What happened to the Levites that were there and saw this? What happened to the Roman soldiers that were there and saw this? That all fell to the ground. No wonder that the centurion at the cross says, truly, this was the Son of God. That had spread through the the cohort there, Antonio, no doubt. It says that he cut off his right ear. If he cut off his right ear, in the Bible, when somebody's left-handed, it always mentions they're left-handed because it's always taken for granted everybody's right-handed. So if he got Malchus's right ear, that means Peter turned out, pulled out the sword, Malchus turned around and tried to run. That's the only way he could have got his right ear because Malchus was heading in the other direction. And Jesus then stops the whole thing. Imagine how that could have cascaded. You got one fisherman with a bloody sword standing there in front of hundreds of Roman soldiers and priests, bad scene here. And it says that then he flees. I mean, they're all going to flee after this. But Jesus tells him, look, put it away. Verse 11, put thy sword into the sheaf. And that's how we know it was a short sword. There, are, it could, if just the word sword could mean a few things, but because it was sheathed, we know this is like the Roman short sword. 
Put up thy sword into the sheaf, the cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Um, Peter had been asleep. Jesus prayed about that cup three times. And Father, finally, not my will, but thy, thine be done. And had taken the cup from the Father's hand. It was the cup that's spoken of in Psalm 75, Isaiah 51, Jeremiah 25, Ezekiel 23. Most importantly, in Revelation chapter, chapter 14, it says those who reject Christ, the cup of his wrath and his torment comes upon them, and the smoke of that cup ascendeth forever and forever. It was the eternal wrath of God that was to be in that cup that Jesus was to drink. He was to be the propitiation. Yes, he suffered terribly. Yes, he shed his blood. But in those three hours of darkness, he suffered eternally for you and I. And that was the cup. He didn't say, Father, if, if I don't have to be scourged, don't let it happen. If I don't have to be beaten, don't let it happen. If I don't have to be crucified, don't let it happen. He said, Father, the cup. If I don't have to come under that, if there's any other way, let it pass. Let it be gone. And he tells him to put his sword away. Matthew's the one that tells us, and I think Luke too, he says, Peter, he said, don't you know that right now if I wanted to, I could call 12 legions of angels. 72,000 angels. You know they're all waiting for the order. They're all up there watching that these puny little group of Romans are going to tie up Jesus and take him away. Remember, it was one angel in Kings, one angel that came to Jerusalem and slaughtered 185,000 Assyrians in one night. One angel. So if you have 72,000 angels, you can kill over 13 billion people in one night. Jesus is not in a tough spot. He just happens to be in control. His hour has come, and he sees you and I sitting here. He says, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has put to my lips? The cup of God's wrath that we deserve. That he took upon himself so that we can be free. He is in complete control here of every step, of every conversation, of everything moving forward. Put it away, Peter. This is the very thing I've come for. This is the hour. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me to drink. You know, I, I look at this and I think, you know, in, in one sense, he takes the sword out of all of our hands, you know. Um, I think the church through the centuries has made huge mistakes with the sword and has heard the rebuttal of that through centuries. I don't think it's that easy today to take up the sword so that the cause of Christ can go forward. 
And I think it's here in one sense that Jesus, who could say, I am, and scatter the, the troops and the officers to the ground with a word, doesn't need a sword to help him. He's the same today. And as I look at it, I think, all right, Lord, you know, you're inside of me, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Would you help me, Lord, in those circumstances when I am particularly frustrated to keep my sword in the sheath, Lord? Because my inclination is to take somebody's head off. Not their ear, their head. Right? I can be like that. You can be like that as well. So I look at it and I think, Lord, is there a lesson? Help me, Lord, you know, not to do that. I am inclined to do that. Help me, Lord, rather, you said, shall I not take the cup that the Father has given to me? He's obeying his Father, but when he taught us to pray, he taught us to pray, our Father, who art in heaven. So I'm thinking, Lord, when I'm in a bad situation, please bring to my mind, you know, our Father. That I can obey you in the circumstance. Because not only is that circumstance wearing down my carnal nature, my physical frame, but Lord, you're still divine and you're dwelling in me. So Lord, would you help me to obey our Father, my Father, in those circumstances? Would you help me, Lord, here, he helps the disciples escape to be free. Help me, Lord, um, when I'm around my brothers and sisters in Christ, if I can exert myself in any way to help someone else out of a jam, out of a situation, out of slander, would you help me to do that? Christ in me, not me. Christ in me. To be kind to your betrayer. I don't even want to say that. Help me, Lord. Can I be kind to a betrayer? Can I be kind to somebody stabbing me in the back? And I have enough wounds there, and they'd all tell you he didn't do good. Can I be kind? To a betrayer. That's not natural. It's supernatural. But he does it here. He demonstrates it in front of us. When Judas came and kissed him, he said, friend. Friend. Betrayest thou the son of man with a kiss? Friend. Do I have the grace to say to someone who betrays me, friend? And do I have the, the grace to desire to see my enemies healed? You look at this world we're living in, we can be very frustrated with it. And uh, Lord, just get us out of here and smoke the rest of them. You know. Do I have the grace to want to see my enemies healed? He took that ear and put it back on again. Sometimes I'm thinking, Lord, you need to put my ear back on because I ain't listening right now. 
But he, he draws, John is an artist, and in the narrative, he, he moves from the conversation now to a narrative, and he begins to draw this picture with a lot of different colors, and it's just so amazing because his main concern is put to put Jesus, the Lord, Yahweh, in front of us. And that there's no human, there's nothing out of control here. Nobody has the upper hand. He himself is walking with resolve right into what is unimaginable for you and I, and literally for you and I. And that's the picture we'll have as we move now to the end of John's gospel, what he does for us in our place, in the way that we can't do things. He does those things for us. Are we to grow in Christ? Sure. Are we to learn? Sure. Does he have, it's interesting, I read in Spurgeon this morning, does he have all of us? Well, he has us. And so many times in the Bible it says, I shall have them. He has me, but he shall have me as well. More and more as I live, and ultimately when I step into his kingdom. But he wants, you know, he demonstrates these things. He's our example, it says. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a slave. And he became obedient to death, not just to death, but even to the death of the cross. Incredible humility. And now, Paul tells us, that at the name that is above all names, Jesus, every name should bow, things in heaven, things in the earth, things under the earth, and declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen? Amen. To the glory of God the Father. Let's stand. Let's pray together. Lord, we see you in your beauty and in your power and in your resolve in your majesty, in your sovereignty, in your omnipotence, in your omniscience, all through this, Lord, all through this. And Lord, we know in one sense we will never live up to a perfect example. But we also know, Lord, that you've come. In regeneration, you've, you've indwelled us. You had told them this night, I have been with you, but shall be in you. And Lord Jesus, you're in us. We watch you navigate these things, and we realize, Lord, how desperately, how desperately, Lord, we need your unction, your word, your spirit, your leading. But we ask with great anticipation. We think of how these men laid down their lives as the years went by. Lord, if that is our lot, give us grace. We look to you and we pray in your name. Amen.